Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Okay, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Uh, we are Leech Fest. We are the Leech Fest. We are the Leech Fest. And this podcast is going to be about medical history. My name is Raluca. I have a degree in medical science. And with me is... Mia. I have a degree in history. Yeah. And a lot of medical history. But not, not like what people actually did, but more like how people thought about medicine. Mm-hmm. How people thought about science and the ideology of medicine. So, okay, so you, why, why are we doing a podcast? Well, you came up with the idea first, Mia, right? Like, yeah. you, you wanted to do this. You've been wanting to do this for a while. I've been, yeah, I've been wanting to do a podcast for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to do something that was, like, very history-based. Yeah. Like, I'm a content creator already, like, before this podcast. Mm-hmm. You do YouTube. I do YouTube. I am a YouTuber. Watch my channel, please. Um, What's your channel name? It's Mia Mulder. <laughs> it's my name. It's your name. Cool. Just uh, go to MiaMulder.com. Um, I'm probably sponsored by someone right now. Hmm. Go to the must, must be nice. <laughs> it's great. If you want to sponsor this podcast on episode one, please do. That would be neat. It would be very neat. I'd love that. Uh, so I've been wanting to do a podcast for a long time. That is more like history focused because my YouTube channel is it's a bit of a mishmash. I do I do all sorts of things on my YouTube channel, and I feel like um, you know, I kind of want to stretch the history muscles a little bit like mm-hmm. properly. Mm. I want to I want to I want to flex. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you know, I kind of approached you because you know actual medicine, and I feel like medical history is, you know, people like gross stuff on podcasts. We kind of we kind of found each other because we both wanted to make a sort of podcast thing. Yeah, so I'm not a medical doctor. Um, just in case there's any misunderstanding, I I have a degree in uh, medical uh, science, which is like the research aspect of medicine. But you know, I'm interested in um, in history as well. So I thought it would be fun to you know pair up with Mia and maybe come up with something interesting together. Um, okay, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about uh, the history of like mental health, uh, mm. m- more like and more like mental illness, mental illness, and um, how society has treated people who are mm. what we would today call mentally ill, and what people did with those people. You can you can expect that this is going to be an episode that deals a lot with asylums and the like, but we'll try to cover most of world history. Obviously, it's going to be a bit. You know, it's got to be a little simplified. It's not a university course. Okay, yeah. We're going to do a bit of um, like an overview of mental illness, like, you know, for as far back as we can trace it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take it a little bit through ancient history. And then we're going to focus more on like modern history, right? Like yeah. 1750s. 50, like 18th century. Yeah. We're, st- we're starting with like prehistory. Exactly. A uh, little bit of Middle Ages, a little bit of uh, like leading into the Renaissance. That's when things are turned into high year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Okay, so um, prehistory. They, how did uh, how did our Stone Age 
ancestors, ancestors. view mental illness. Um, okay, well, before we get into that, let's talk a bit about what, um, like, what is mental illness and how has mental illness been defined over the course of time? Because yeah. the way we look at mental illness now is a bit different than the way people used to look at mental illness. Mm -hmm. So now somebody who's mentally ill, generally, you know, that is somebody who is a threat to themselves, a threat to others, maybe can't take care of themselves, mm -hmm. can't really do their daily tasks mm -hmm. and responsibilities. In the past, that wasn't really like that. It was it was really anybody who wasn't conforming to the role that they were supposed to fill in society. Which is kind of easy for us to look back on and say, right? Because mm -hmm. like even today, a lot of definitions of mental unhealth is that, you know, someone who can't live quote unquote a normal life by mm -hmm. themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And like what do we mean by that? Mm. So that that is very much that that we as a modern society is sort of looking back on history and like we are judging history. And we are, we're gonna judge history a lot here. But you know, it's good to have that in mind that like even even today we are we're kind of we are, we are judging people based on like how how normal how normal of a life they can live. Even mm -hmm. if we're probably better at it today than they were Yeah, for sure. I mean I'm sure people in the future are gonna look back at us and be like Damn, they were... They were doing some wild shit? Yeah. They weren't treating those people very nicely, huh? No. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't fix them a lot. But that is how we kind of view it today, yeah. isn't it? How... And we're obviously going to talk about how that changes throughout the podcast, mm -hmm. throughout history. Mm -hmm. So let's, 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 let's go back in our time machine. Mm -hmm. I'm pulling a crank in real life here, in the mm -hmm. time machine, there's a sound effect going on that we're traveling back in time to very early, prehistory, perhaps, mm -hmm. on how, mm -hmm. how they viewed mental illness and how they did with it, how they treated yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. The earliest trace of mental illness treatment mm -hmm. we have is from old skulls and cave paintings that date as early as six millennia before Christ that depicted cases of uh, trephination. So that was when holes were drilled in skulls that were meant to let spirits out. So people believed the spirits were trapped inside the skulls, and they thought that by drilling holes in their skulls that, you know, the spirits would go out and the person wouldn't suffer from mental illness anymore. And that was a case of, like, a supernatural cause for mental illness, you know. People used to believe that mental illness would um, come up because of one of three reasons. So the first one would be, you know, supernatural reasons, such as possession, uh, displeasure of gods, planetary gra gravitation, eclipses, um, sin. A second one was somatological, and that was like imbalances due to physical illness or disease. And then psychogenic was the third one. And that would be like traumatic experiences and distorted perceptions and things like that. So trephination was meant to, to cure illness that arose due to supernatural reasons. I wonder how much of this is because of anachronistic view on how they described it mm -hmm. because i imagine like i don't imagine that meaning like stone age cave people being like ah you you are you are you're you're sad you have anxiety obviously you have unbalance of serotonin and dopamine levels in your brain so we're going to give you like this bark to fix that like i don't really see that happening mm -hmm. uh, so i'm wondering if like to them it was probably a very scientific solution your head is hurting you Let's let's drill in it and see if it, see if we can make it better. I'm wondering, like, if they fully believed it was 
with, with a full really bad spirits or if spirits is like a metaphor for just like bad stuff in i mean i think it's a mix of things that you know they they i think people in six millennia before christ they didn't have so much to base beliefs on they didn't really have explanations for anything so then it was very easy to come up with like superstitions and you mm. know think of spirits or doing things yeah. um, but i think that you are onto something there that you know if the source of the the source of the disease was based in the head in the brain then maybe it makes sense that they wanted to to do something to it although what i'm wondering here is how did they know that it was based in the brain this is one of the like pitfalls of history a lot of the time we just don't know yeah. The, the details but we do know that they drilled holes in, in heads mm-hmm. we do we do know that right after well i guess not right after but about four thousand years later <laughs> immediately after the first head drilling <laughs> about four thousand years later there is this uh you know the this chinese concept of yin and yang comes up so then here the chinese physicians and philosophers they come up with this concept of complementary positive and negative bodily forces uh, so yin and yang, which they use to attribute both mental and physical illness to an imbalance of forces within the body. And so they believe that allowing um, allowing for these forces to, to go back in balance would, would restore the person to, to health. A sort of like precursor to the humors, which we'll mention in a bit. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. It, um, I find it interesting that it's, that it's, uh, physicians and philosophers mm. because a lot like especially in like antiquity that's like very common yeah that, exactly like there exactly the, there is there is one type of science and it, mm-hmm. it is philosophy one where, type of science science is everything they were yeah. chemists they were physicians yeah. they were philosophers they were astronomers it was all it was a five and one yeah and this is before the scientific method to especially like uh, we're gonna mention the ancient greeks soon but like this happened in early early chinese philosophical history as well where most of the time these people didn't really do experiments Mm -hmm. is most of the time they just sat and like thought like that makes sense that like logically this makes sense yin and yang balancing within each other if you have too much bad stuff that's not good Mm. makes sense let's put it on paper and believe it for a couple of thousand years run me my money now (laughs) run me my scientist money give money please emperor please give me money i came up with a theory today (laughs) But like people, like you know, it was people wanted explanations, and their job was to give explanations. Yeah. And if um, they didn't necessarily have to prove them, but mm-hmm. as long as they kind of made sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, uh, so that was two two thousand seven hundred years BC. Now we're moving to close to two thousand BC. So in Mesopotamia and um, Egypt, mm-hmm. um, fertile crescent. The Fertile Crescent. Well, I guess Egypt isn't in the Fertile Crescent, but still. Right. So in Mesopotamia and Egypt, they start uh, describing women suffering from um, mental illness as uh, suffering from a from a wandering uterus, and which is later named hysteria by the Greeks. So the idea was that the uterus could become dislodged and travel through the body and attach itself to other areas of the body, causing mental dysfunctioning. And so, as a result, the Egyptians, and later the Greeks, employed the somatogenic treatment of strong-smelling substances to guide the uterus back to its proper location, therefore restoring the person to good health. I love, I love strong-smelling medicine. You do? That's, that, that, the idea of, like, this person has, this person has hysteria, this person mm-hmm. is completely out of control. 
Let's put him in a room with something stinky. <laughs> something stinky. <laughs> something stanky. I, I, something nasty. I something do. real dirty and mm. gross. And they, they, th- they did that like a long time, like for a long time, didn't they? Like ladies in the Victorian era would like smell oh, yeah. those like... Oh, bath salts. Bath salts, salts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they oh were I popular. wish I had that. The like... Empire, the, oh, the British Empire. Oh, that's a big thing. People talk about tea and stuff, but like, oh, mm, different type salts. of salts that they were... What? Smelling salts. What oh. were they? I don't know, actually. Okay. Like, quick... We don't need... We don't okay, need we, to don't need to, we don't need to look at need... it. I know... That's a, that's a whole episode on its own. Smelling salts. Smelling salts. It could be okay. a minisode. We can do a, we can do a special a little minisode. But yes, smelling salts was a big thing. Like, mm. um... The, because the idea was that you can sort of ingest chemicals by by smelling them, um, or well, basically, the smell would affect your health, not just mental health, but like physical health. Like your, it would affect your body. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, guide your uterus back to its proper location, yeah. we, just with the help of some some stinky stuff. Some stinky stuff. Um, Makes some, sense. Some some something to counter the miasma. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, then come the Greeks. So for 400 uh, years before Christ, we have Hippocrates. He attempted to separate superstition and religion from medicine by systematizing the belief that physical and mental illness were connected with a deficiency or a nexus in one of the four body humors. We all know about them. The black bile, the yellow bile, the blood, and the phlegm. So it's kind of, I guess it's, yeah, like you said, mm. the, you know, the yin and yang was a bit of a precursor to this. But he, he you know, he thought that some sort of imbalance would, would lead to physical illness. And mental mm. illness was a physical illness. And he yeah. was actually quite revolutionary in, in, like, being one of the first who, who actually um, connected the two. As opposed to like being something that that's caused by bad behavior or sin or yeah, displeasing or, the gods or spirits or astrology. Yeah, exactly. Like this is something that is connected to the physical body. It's not from the it's not from the astral plane. Mm-hmm. That's not where it's a physical illness. Yeah. Um, so he classified mental illness into four categories: epilepsy, mania, melancholia, and brain fever. And another thing that he actually he was one of the first people who do this. He really tried to um, to, inst- to institute this belief that those suffering from mental illness should be cared for and not shamed or... Um, like shunned. Shunned, yeah. um, exactly. Like cast out from society. Cast out from society. So that was 400 BC. Mm-hmm. We're going to jump a little bit. I'm going to jump a little bit. Well, I mean, we, sh- we should also mention that like Hippocrates was definitely onto something. Yeah. Like he... You know, we, we, we kind of make fun of the humors today... Mm-hmm. Because we have, you know, we have the periodic table. We know what chemicals and molecules are. We know what, we know what cells are. Mm-hmm. He's just running. He's just sitting like under a palm tree in Greece, being like drinking some olive oil and wine and having drinking olive oil, drinking olive oil just straight from the glass, and just thinking like, I think there's some small parts inside of us that balance. Like when they're out of balance, they make us bad. Mm-hmm. Which you know, that's still kind of the truth today. Except that instead of four, there are like a gajillion different humors. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, he was onto something. And, you know, it was, it was pretty cool to see that he, um, you know, that he, he showed empathy in that way. And that um, was the last time empathy was shown for, for, a, for a couple good, of thousand years. For a good couple of thousand of years. So, 
When I was uh, talking earlier about how mental illnesses were usually attributed to one of three reasons, one thing that I didn't really mention was that there wasn't really a linear transition between the three. So it didn't go from like, you know, supernatural causes in the uh, prehistoric era, then to somatological and then to psychogenic. It was more like a, like a back and forth between the three, which was... You know, I mean, it just, it happens. Like, you know, you, you have some regions undergoing some things. Things change all the time. Mm -hmm. History is messy. History is very messy. But there, there, it's one of the great misunderstandings about history, that history sometimes moves from, like, from a disc or organized into organized and mm -hmm. from, 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 like, barbarous to civilized. But that's not, that's, that's not at not, all how it works. No, not like, at all. Um, movements come and go. And there are different, like, cultural changes. There are... Their technological change and all of these things mess with each other and everything's a big old mess. Right. So Hippocrates tried to 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 make it clear. <laughs> he he really tried <laughs> to institute that idea that mental illness had somatological causes. So it was it was linked to um, to physical illness. There was something going on in the body mm. uh, that was causing it. And then when we look, we you know we we move back, we move forward in time, and we go into like medieval Europe. Uh, supernatural. There's no empathy at all. Anymore. There's there's no empathy, and also supernatural reasoning for or like attributing men mental illness to supernatural reasons makes a big comeback. Mm. Superstition, astrology, alchemy, all that takes hold, and they start uh, bringing back all of these like old-fashioned ways of looking at those things. So mm. they start trying to cure illnesses with like prayer rites and like relic touching, confessions, and exorcisms. So there's a there's quite a step back from what um, the ancient Greeks were trying to do, and there's also there's the the people with mental illness uh, really go through a hard time. Like people are not very empathetic towards them in that time. <laughs> they're having a bad they're having a bad moment. They're for, having a bad moment. It's a, I mean, it's the reason it's called the Dark Ages for many mm. different reasons, and it's not like it was particularly good for people who were mentally ill at that time. Too. Right, like they start doing trephinations again in you know. Go back into 13th, the thirteenth century Europe. Also, like women displaying signs of mental illness, they're persecuted as witches like nothing else. Mm. And got, that, got that wandering uterus. <laughs> got that wandering uterus. And it doesn't end. So the, the witch uh, burnings, they don't end until like the 7th, 17th or 18th century. Like it goes late. Up until and during the Middle Ages, the mentally ill are really the responsibility of their families. They're, the state doesn't really intervene. So they're either taking care of their families or maybe by local parishes if they're lucky enough to live in an area where there are any otherwise there really is there's no support for them so in the case where their families can't take care of them they they end up destitute um or in workhouses mm. i should mention like uh, for a long time like during this like there is no really such a thing as like the state you know you, there's there should like your local lord your local <laughs> and lord. if your local yeah. lord doesn't want like your local lord probably doesn't care yeah like he he probably just wants to party and I say he, which is statistically correct for the mm -hmm. Middle Ages. Your local lord wants your taxes and... And your sheep and, and your, your eggs sheep and, and your, your eggs most eligible maidens. Does not want your mentally ill. They can go, go to the Crusades. They can go conquer some stuff. They can die in the siege. He does not care. He does not care. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's what I mean when I say the state. Yeah. Right. But, okay, but... 
once we reach mid 16th century, that is when um, we start seeing the first asylums become um, established, specifically St. Mary of Bethlehem in London, known as Bethlehem, and the General Hospital of Paris. Um, so those are the, the very first actual establishments for the mentally ill that appear. So their, their mission uh, was to house and to confine the mentally ill. So these, these very first establishments, really their purpose is to gather all the, the mentally ill and put them in a, in, a, in a building and hide them from the rest of the society. They also took in the poor, the homeless, the unemployed, the criminal, basically all the undesirables produced by war and economic depression. Well, it was also like took took in implies that they welcomed them in. They were they were forced in. They were forced. They in, took yeah. them in violently. I yeah. I guess I'm trying to be a bit more um, <laughs> to be a bit diplomatic when I talk about these things. But yeah, these people these people were not cordially invited to join uh, the other fellas in in Saint Mary's. They were they were picked up. Yeah. They were they were checked in there. They were. <laughs> They were swooped off the streets. And they were put in there like yesterday's leftovers into, into oh, a microwave. Oh my God. Yeah, and, and, and let me tell you, the conditions were not good. They were not good. They were not good. They, I mean, people, back then, people really thought of the mentally ill as, um, almost as animals. They didn't think that they mm. had feelings. They didn't think that they could feel pain. They thought that they were, yeah, they were animals. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't mind living in, in, you know, obscenely, um, disgusting conditions. Yeah. The, like uh, the idea of personhood, the idea that everyone has personhood is a very modern idea. Mm. Uh, and back in those days, like you, you are you are more of a person if you are virtuous, if mm-hmm. you own property, if you if you are like in strong physical and mental condition. Like that, that makes you more of a person. Mm. You're probably the most person if you're like rich and a noble. That's. Yeah. When you're most person. If you're poor, you're not that much of a person. And if you're poor and mentally ill, you're basically you're you're, basically you're an seen animal. as an animal. It should be said that like people in those days, like that's that's very mainstream belief. So it's not as if people were like I mean some people definitely were just evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well they, I mean they were all pretty evil letting them be in those conditions. But they would rationale it away with like well they're fine with it. Yeah, exactly. Like, they they literally thought they were fine with it. Um yeah, they I mean they also thought that they were they were just going to be violent if left to their own yeah. means, you know? And so they thought that only through fear could these mentally ill people be controlled. Yeah, you gotta keep them in basically prisons. Yeah, basically prisons. So there was a lot of there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of physical violence. There was, you know, it was not a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Saint Mary's actually became famous for also allowing the general population to watch the patients for a fee. Um, a zoo, <clears throat> a, a human zoo, basically. So I, I'm, I'm happy that we've, we've come, we've moved we've, past we've the zoo moved, era. We've moved past the zoo era, exactly. There's not a viewing booth that people can come and watch people in the psych ward today. Right. So at least we have that. One thing that these asylums added um, was that they did believe that mental illness was physical. So they did treat the patients as they as they would treat physically ill patients. So um, they, you know, they did purges, they did bleedings. So I guess that is something to say about the way that people at the time viewed mental illness. They're trying to, the idea is that they're trying to fix them 
instead of just isolate them. And yeah, they tried. Out. They tried to treat these people, but they also, you know, they didn't perform exorcisms on them. So mm. the the way that the, they didn't believe uh, that mental illness was a curse from the gods, mm. you know, they they were trying to move away a bit from the supernatural mm. uh, way of looking at it. Mm. Okay. We have these very basic institutions, right? We have bedlam, mm -hmm. <laughs> literal, literal bedlam. Unfortunately, we do. <laughs> Unfortunately, we do, and it's it's chaotic. Mm -hmm. It is it's, full of human rights abuses. It's dirty. <laughs> it's dirty. It's nasty. <laughs> it is. Uh, it is bad generally it's, for patients. Yeah, it's a cesspool of human rights violations. <laughs> a cesspool of human rights violations. What we would today call human rights violations. Yes. Back in those days, human rights didn't exist. Um, so for most of the world, there is there is no such thing as like a specialist institution. You can't really like if you're if you're average Joe, in in society at this point, you can't just go to someone and be like, "Hi, I have mental health. Can I talk to a therapist?" Mm -hmm. And they'll be like, "What the hell is a therapist?" <laughs> Go and pray. Have you sinned? <laughs> go, go, to, go to a priest. Confess, my son, and you shall be saved. Yeah. So, and at, at the turn of the 18th century, there's really, there's really nothing, mm -hmm. almost for the for most people. If you're very wealthy, you can you can you can have um uh, uh what's it called a doctor, a physician, mm -hmm. a private physician. And they will sort of take care of you. Uh, there is no such thing as necessarily like a psychiatrist or mental health specialist, but you can get a doctor mm -hmm. and they will give you some smelling salts. They will give you a potion. They will give you a potion. Uh, madness, which was which was the name, was seen as very much a domestic problem. Like, as you mentioned, like it's something that's dealt with families or like within the village, the small community. It's right. not really seen as a health problem or a yep. societal thing. It's more like behavioral issues that, you know, your family can can deal with themselves. Yeah, exactly. And most times, most times, most times, most times. Sometimes, sometimes into the asylum you go, but most times your family can take care of it. But around the age of the Enlightenment, there comes this idea that like we should reject the supernatural, we should reject uh, re reject tradition, embrace modernity. <laughs> yeah, and part of that goes like the the mental ill are they they are mental ill of no choice of their own. We should care for them. We should we should make sure that they are treated humanely and fairly. We should make sure that they are well taken care of and we should potentially rehabilitate them. So how does this start exactly? Like what what exactly catalyzes this transition? Well it comes with a sort of general wave of the Enlightenment. For example, Daniel Defoe was a very ardent critic of private madhouses because he uh, he saw, you know, rife human rights abuses, and he saw that people, you know, weren't treated as people. He, mm -hmm. you know, they were treated as animals. And because, like, at, during this time, many of these private asylums, like like Bedlam, for example, they're they're kind of getting a little bit crowded. Mm -hmm. Like they're getting they're getting a bit full because they earn, uh, you know, they do this for profit. They mm -hmm. they make money. The more people they can stuff into them, the better. But the more people they stuff into them, the more of a like. They they rise to prominence, mm -hmm. so bedlam becomes, as you say, it became infamous. Yeah. So more people get to know about it, and they see yeah. like, oh, this isn't good. Yeah, exactly. Um, it even became something called uh, a trade in lunacy, where people started to, 
Well, like it became like an industry. Mm-hmm. Like more people started to set up their own their own madhouses and started like taking money from from like the from like the local council or the, or the local um, MP, for example, to to take in the the, the local the local madmen, so mm-hmm, to say. Mm-hmm. So uh, it gets crowded, and the conditions it gets are crowded. bad, and people sort of like find out about the things that are happening, and and so so it's is it like a push from? Um, I guess it's not really a push from the population. It's more like a push from. Well, it's a push from like thinkers, from like thinkers, yeah, from okay. from academics, mm-hmm. from from people who today would have way too many followers on Twitter. Okay, who would have hot takes the, about the current the local influencers, <laughs> the local influencers. Yeah. They're they're having thoughts. They're drinking their coffee, um, which is new. They're taking their baths. And they're, they're taking their baths thoughts. and they're having thoughts. Okay, makes sense. But this doesn't really power through that much in like the in mainstream society. Mm-hmm. Most people still are like afraid. Of the mentally mm. ill, they still want them to be isolated and mm-hmm. take like be away from the community. And so, what happens is the government sort of wants to step in, yeah. Because right during this time, like the 1700s, what we would today call like the state also starts to emerge. Yeah. Like yeah, we're, okay. we're transitioning away from local lords, we're going into municipalities. We're mm-hmm. starting to have governments, elected officials to some capacity, like kings and stuff already exist, but they're the middlemen sort of sort mm-hmm. of here. Um, the bureaucracy. The appears. bureaucracy <laughs> comes, and everything became actually better. I shouldn't say. I was about to say worse, but it actually became way better. Uh, not for the mental ill, though, because <laughs> um, uh, what happens is the government starts to see this as a sort of a problem. The private uh, houses—they're treating the people bad, and they're the, the mad people. They're you know they're, they're not getting better. They're not they're getting just, better. Anyway. They're just locked in a building in filth. Like exactly. So. In London, uh, because it ha- this happened much in England and in France, this is where like a lot of this sort of institutionalization began. Yeah, where the the state is starting to take responsibility for for these people, and because a big statewide effort to build like asylums that are owned by the state, and the idea is that they will be far more efficient, they will be far more humane, and they will have better expertise. In 1774, uh, Britain introduces licensing legislation Mm -hmm. where those private houses, they have to license with the government in order to stay going. Mm -hmm. If they they don't meet certain criteria, they can't run anymore. Mm. However, these madhouses are increasing because it is a profitable industry. Mm -hmm. A lot of these uh, licensors, they can't really keep up with the growth. Mm -hmm. they're, They're starting to license some of the early houses but more and more just pop up anyway, mm-hmm. and they might shut down, shut down one, but then two more pop up anyway. Yeah, they can't. Yeah. It's too, it's too, it's too profitable. Chaotic. It's too good. It's too good, and that's because during this time, families would often like pay the madhouse. Mm-hmm. Like, you have a family member can't take care of themselves. They're they're being quote unquote mad, mm. and the family will pay like a pretty pretty penny for somebody to take them off their hands yeah to take them off their hands like they will take care of them instead they will say to the family like we will take care of them in, in the in the manner that best suits them oh god which is usually like chucking them in a in a in a barracks oh and they'll god. do hard labor it's basically it's basically a prison that and that doesn't really change but eventually uh, they start opening up houses for pauper patients mm-hmm. which are people who who don't have any family to pay anything they don't have any the community doesn't pay for them to go in, and they are completely destitute. Their numbers also explode, and their patient numbers also explode, because now anyone can sort of get in, but once they get in, they're kind of caught in the system. So what year was this? 
1774. 1774. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this is this is the age of enlightenment, right? And compassion becomes becomes a virtue far more. So when in the UK, the ruling monarch at the time, George the Third, mm-hmm. uh, he suffered from from a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. Like he uh, he he. He had a mental disorder. Was he bipolar? I think I remember reading something about that. Probably, like you know, the 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 descriptions of the day aren't clear. Yeah. exactly what mm. what it was. He had a mental disorder. Yeah, but, but he, I, I think, today he I would think probably fits, be because of it. Exactly. Like yeah. if I think it fits with the modern definition of bipolar disorder. Yeah, uh, but he experienced a remission. Mm-hmm. Basically, he had like an easing of symptoms right in 1789, mm-hmm. and suddenly, British academics are like, "Oh, this isn't." You're not doomed. Mm-hmm. You can actually get better from these things, kind of. Mm-hmm. And this is where the ambition of curing rather than like maintaining mm-hmm. or like isolating becomes more of a priority. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Mm. Um, and th- a similar thing happened in France in 1792. A man called Pinel <laughs> became the chief physician at a hospital in Paris. Mm-hmm. And before he, he got there, uh, inmates were chained in cell-like rooms, there was no ventilation, and uh, they were, they were, the prison was currently, like, oh, I say prison, the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing. At the time, it was led by someone called Jackson Taylor, Mm -hmm. and he was killed in an inmate's uprising, Uh, and that led to Pinel becoming, like, the chief medical officer. Yeah. (laughs) Because all of the patients were like, this, this guy is... Treating us bad, but during his leadership under Pinel, the new the new guy, the new chief medical officers, he started uh, freeing patients from their chains. He would use straight jackets instead of chains, much more humane. Um, and they could move around the hospital grounds instead of being in underground dungeons. Mm. And this yeah, was seen ba- as baby like, steps here, baby steps. Like, and this was seen as not... like we're making great progress yeah. now because now they're not trying to kill the doctors constantly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> trying to escape. God. And it was successful. They started. Uh, this, they brought in more of these reforms, these humane reforms of straitjackets mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, above ground cells, uh, and they brought them to to other to other hospitals. Um, and because it was seen as more efficient, the the state started like using this model in other places as well. Yeah. But because private institutions aren't really using these models in the same way, they're slowly getting phased out. Mm-hmm. And suddenly a sort of statewide approach becomes the norm. Like mm-hmm. a state asylum becomes mm-hmm. like a standard way of doing things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, many of these old ideas about isolating them, uh, isolating the mentally ill away from mainstream society, that is still sort of the main goal. Mm-hmm. Like people... That was still how asylums, like, functioned for the most... Yes. For the most cases. These ideas of, like, healing and uh, rehabilitation and things like that, they are very... They are the sort of ideal. Mm -hmm. And that is very much like what they said that they were doing. But the the reason why the asylums got money, the reason why the state sort of take it over, is very much... This is a problem for society, and we're going to isolate that problem and keep them like concentrated somewhere else. Mm, like we're keep going them to away from like yeah, like keep them the, away from real normal society. Nor- so to say. Normal people, <laughs> normal people. Yeah, and it's important to note that like they were st- like even though they were treated a bit better, they were still so the mentally ill were still feared, and they were still yeah. very much treated as as different and as um, less than. 
so they were like you say they were concentrated in a in a little in a little building like mm-hmm. very very far away from cities like yeah. the, those asylums were usually built in like you know in the middle of the forest on like mountains mm-hmm. on elevated grounds they were surrounded by water mm-hmm. yeah um, built on islands built on islands like it's it's so interesting to look back at like how the architecture of these asylums like really reflected the way society looked at mm. the mentally ill back then and how society viewed the way that um, treatment should be primarily isolation yeah it's very much seen as a as a like this these people can't exist in in society yeah yeah. Maybe they can get better, maybe not, mm-hmm. but we're not going to take any risks. We're mm-hmm. going to put them in this building and we're going to, you know, they're going to do hard manual labor. We're going to tire them out so they don't have energy to, yeah. to like, <laughs> to fight the employees. <laughs> like, they, yeah. Other than the isolation, how was life inside an asylum? Well, they really, um, they really tried to, to maintain a very strict routine for the mental ill. They thought that um, mental illness was caused by overstimulation. So they thought that by removing excessive stimuli, then the mind could have could have the opportunity to calm down and restore to its functional Mm -hmm. state. So then mentally ill people were really were they were given a very strict daily schedule they had to wake up at the same time they had to eat very plain foods mm-hmm. cornflakes cornflakes um you know not, well, not yet but basically cornflakes. But, you know like i'm 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 guessing that they had like porridge yeah. you know like I, what did they eat <laughs> back in the 18th century a lot of know. porridge really. a lot of porridge a lot of gruel you know i'm guessing like maybe boiled vegetables if they Probably, had them yeah um, yeah, so they had to do a lot of uh, manual labor. I'm guessing that was the purpose of that was to tire them out, and probably also like some sort of puritanical, like Puritan ideas were in place as well. Oh, okay. um, like don't masturbate, don't, <laughs> don't think about the other the other sex, don't yeah, no, don't have impure thoughts. Yeah, because um, these will only sully your mental health. Exactly. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that 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 they were trying very hard to mold these people into you know good members of society yeah like they were trying to to make them like upstanding upstanding hard-working uh clean mm. you know like that that whole thing yeah. very much by the by the norms set of the time exactly so they they also had like uh, religious readings and things like that mm. i love to read the bible and cure myself of depression In addition to labor, education, religious readings, um, and the general isolation, a lot of asylums also used hydrotherapy. That was big at the time. So uh, warm or more commonly cold water allegedly reduced agitation, especially for those experiencing manic episodes. So so people were um, most often submerged in a bath for hours at a time or mummified in a pack or sprayed with with cold water. Unfortunately, physical abuse by staff members was also common as a means to reduce physical agitation. So what we said earlier about how all these all this new legislation was introduced um, with the purpose of cutting down on abuse in asylums, that is true, but there were still old-fashioned 
practices being implemented in these asylums. Mm. And that includes physical abuse and that does still include um, physical restraints. And I think a lot of it was just because that was honestly just easy to do. Yeah. That was the easy way to calm down an agitated patient. And mm. the, the laws were still not like heavily enforced enough for it to, to be like difficult to do. Yeah. And, you know, at this time... The, you know, as we mentioned, like the main purpose is to isolate and maybe, maybe for like and the like people keep who... them under control. Yeah, right? exactly. And the pe- for maybe for the for the few patients who were under the direct supervision of some of these like more humanist thinkers, maybe they had gotten a little bit mm, better. Yeah, exactly. But for the majority of people who were in in asylums, they didn't really. You know, they would often fall under the. The whims of whoever they were yeah, exactly. subject to. Exactly. So, and and you know, again, the 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 object here is to isolate, not necessarily to cure. Mm. So, and the subject here is like poor people. I I guess it's fair to say that people who ended up in these asylums were really not treated with gloves. No, and it's really hard to to sort of get across the idea that many of these earlier asylums. And I found this surprising when I when I did some research. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the earlier asylums, the people who were there, they were mostly like, as I mentioned, they were put there by their families, for example, yep. the people who could afford. But if you were completely poor, like if you had no one, you would most likely just die in the street <laughs> or be or be in a workhouse or like you wouldn't get any any sort of like even conventional support. You would just be poor and be worked to death in a workhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but during this sort of statewide measure during the early 19th century, that's when that's when poor people, because the government is taking people in, right? So that's when poor people are really being sucked up into, into being isolated. Mm-hmm. Even when they haven't done anything wrong. Uh, maybe just for having like light mental issues, right? And at, the, and at the same time, this is where people who were previously like a bit middle class who would be taken to like a hospital or something would have they would like be slightly too poor to have a private physician but they were like rich enough to have a to go to asylum they're they're leaving this like the system en masse yeah they're they're going somewhere else they can afford better private clinics I think to understand this is best to understand in scale because in the beginning of the 19th century France and Britain combined uh, who are pretty big countries? Uh, they only had like a couple of hundred patients in the early eight, in the early eighteen hundreds. So then you know again people who were were, were uh, given away by their families essentially. But by the end of the eighteen hundreds, this population has is completely boomed. This is where the government is like really taking taking hold. Uh, so it goes from a couple of hundred to hundreds of thousands of people in these asylums. Crowded. Very crowded. But they're also building asylums constantly. They're they are they're they're asylums in every major city and they're huge. Mm-hmm. Um and people who previously may have been sort of like explained away with like, Oh you're you're sick, uh but as long as you can work you're fine. Mm-hmm. Like just go home and work, I guess. Like you're sick, but whatever. Now they're sent off to asylum. Uh people who admit to being especially sinful for example previously they can confess or they do something else now they're sent up to asylum yeah women who have any sort of issue asylum yeah it just ends up being like a, a catch-all duel yeah if there's something wrong with you if you're not a perfect citizen yeah asylum you go 
Yeah, actually, when I was um, when I was researching um, a bit for this, I found like a, an old, like an old. I don't, I don't know. I guess it's like a compilation. It was like mm. some old books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found some records from from an uh, asylum that was operating in the 18th mm-hmm. century. I found a, a PDF of it. It was great. Oh, amazing! With like, with the recorded causes for institutionalization, mm-hmm. and there are so many just non-mental health related causes yeah. <laughs> in this pdf it's it's a really it's really quite something mm. um yeah because it's it's not just to, you know today when we talk about mental illness we talk about like depression anxiety well like we talk brain chemistry back in those days they, yeah, they like, were like Ill anything health... that makes you act differently that yeah. affects your behavior in any way and it's not even just affects your behavior but also just like impacts your like functionality as yeah. a as a as, as a citizen as a member of society so like yeah. ill health or just illness was a perfectly acceptable reason to send somebody to an asylum yeah. uh, having a menstrual period <laughs> was i mean well, if, if someone has a menstrual period and it and it just it irks them really bad off to asylum you go yeah yeah exactly if it changes their behavior in a way that perhaps your husband doesn't like but like religious excitement is another one you're too um, christian you're too christian you're too you're too into it it's good to be christian but yeah. you're you're a bit you should be into it but not that much not that much um bad experience at a seance was another one so you know at a seance seance <laughs> i English is not my first language. Um, so, so spirit rapping, meaning um, a bad experience at a seance. That was another mm. one, you know, just got a little too excited yeah. at a seance. There's a lot of these, um, around the time, seances were big too. Yeah. Like mysticism was like a big thing. It would really I guess it's risky. Like... You know, you have, a, you have a too fun night having a seance mm. and it doesn't know, go good it doesn't go good and you and your buddies are out you're having some drinks you talk with some ghosts and it, you, it doesn't go good for it you it doesn't go good and then you're you're, you're upset locked, about it and you're locked in an asylum for yeah. 20 years like that's a risky activity to yeah. do yeah well you were you were very you shouldn't got you shouldn't have gotten that upset about that bad experience <laughs> if you do if you wanted your money back no you you shouldn't have you should have if you're not that upset you you would would have avoided the asylum yeah but i have to say that a lot of these a lot of these recorded causes, they seem very, like, specific to women. You yeah. know, a lot of causes, which I can see, you know, could cause a lot of, like, emotions. Mm. So, for example, like, loss of a child, lactation, having a menstrual period, neglect or abuse by a husband. Um, which is wild to me. Like, if if you're upset about being abused by your husband, you're going to the You're asylum. the one, get, like, getting sent. Gotta have a stiff, up, stiff upper lip. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, exactly. it's just don't you dare be upset in this in this time period yeah in the 1800s if you're sad if you're you an, die and uh, yeah so i mean being an emotional woman was not no. um it was not taken lightly no um by like 18th 19th century mm. um europe yeah it's dark it's dark yeah So we were talking earlier about asylums, which were aimed at poor people. Um, but of course, that that wasn't the place where everybody would go. So mm. we, we all know about sanatoria. We all know it. Is that the plural of sanatorium? 
I think there's different ways of saying it. I found senatoria, senatoriums, senatoriams. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of different ways to say it. But anyway, so they were still mental institutions, but they were for-profit businesses, and they had a very different mm. demographic. <laughs> kind of, kind of like the early asylums, like before it became institutionalized. Like they were for-profit. Yeah, they were for-profit. They were private businesses, but so they were designed more for the wealthy, eccentric, mm. as opposed to the poor, psychotic. <laughs> so that is that is very much, um, you know, having money really like (laughs) draws like puts you in a different category if you have the same problem yeah so um so initially they were built as a place for people to go when they're recovering from um tuberculosis and other you know respiratory conditions Mm. and they were usually built at high altitudes because it was believed that you know the, the fresh air combined with um you know the cleanliness and the the, f- the full service mm. would allow sick people to heal and recover and get back to their to their normal self. Which is a very smart thing, actually, because I feel like a lot of these people, you know, wealthy, they were probably, like, you know, trying to escape, like, big cities, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the Victorian era. Yeah, cities <laughs> were like, dirty. They were so dirty. Like, if you're listening to this, you, we, we talk about, like, a dirty air now. You, We can't even imagine how dirty the air was. Yeah. Buildings were black from the coal in the air. Yeah, and like, the streets were running with human waste, then, with animal waste. I mean, they... If you if you want to do some... Oh, we should do an episode on this in the future. Uh-huh. We should do an episode <laughs> on the big stink in London. Yeah. And basically, there was too much poop in the water. There was too much poop. Uh, everything was awful. Like I can imagine, like trying to get out and like to the mountains, being like, "Oh, it's fresh air here. I can I'm not breathing breathe. poison." <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was originally they were originally built for people with tuber- tuberculosis and, and other respiratory diseases, but they soon realized that actually this is this is a nice place for for people to recover from other sorts of illnesses too. Yeah. Um, and so combined with the the full service and the the clean air and the open space, the good nutrition, yeah, they they. I thought that that would help um, people suffering from from uh, mental unhealth, from mental unhealth, from uh, people who who needed to rest, people mm. who needed to to take a moment. Mm. They they thought that that would be a good place for yeah. them to stay, and more importantly, people who could pay for that. Yeah, exactly. It was. It's it like was a full, not it's cheap. like a uh, full-service like hotel stay. It was like a resort. Yeah. So I mean, they still they still used treatments, and I think the people like the people who went there were not. Um, I mean, oftentimes it was their families that sent them there. So mm. even though the conditions were much better than um, those in an asylum, they were still... They, like they were, were still st- kind of sent there. They were still kind of like mental yeah. institutions. So they still used, you know, um, hydrotherapy and they still mm. used... It was not. It was still not the most pleasant place to be, but it was definitely better than asylums. Um, they still used similar concepts such as isolation they still had like a pretty strict um like schedule and regime they still um had to do um, manual labor uh, which consisted of walking through the gardens (laughs) um having a good think having a good think but they also had more innovative therapies such as massage and gym uh, gym exercise Mm. oh yeah oh i've i've seen some i've seen some very early photographs of 
people doing some early gymnastics mm-hmm. to hearten the spirit. Exactly. Um, where they're just they're just doing PE basically, mm-hmm. in running in circles around the running the in grounds. circles, like doing jumping jacks a little jumping bit. Jumping jacks, yeah. This will cure you of your of your child shock there from the <laughs> from the second Boer War. I'm liking the accent. <laughs> mm, thank you. All. And they had to, you know, they had to treat their clients like relatively good because you don't want to send back. There was like, the no young... physical abuse in those sanitary. No, exactly. Oh, maybe a little bit. We can't say that there were no physical abuse. There was probably one guard somewhere who like beat some heiress a little bit, or, like some 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 air some air prince a little too hard, and then then Daddy Dukesbury comes back from the war <laughs> on the Western Front and goes like, oh, you, and then shuts down the entire thing, and then he has a new hotel. Mm-hmm. Probably. I'm just saying, it probably happened at least once. Probably happened at least once. For sure. History is big. A lot, every, his, in fact, it's often stranger than fiction. So this is where like rich people end up, right? But for most people, for the grand majority of the population, they go to one of these many hundreds of asylums that are now cropping up all over Europe. And many of these asylums were connected to universities because universities have also during this time also grown. They've changed from the Middle Ages. There's, it's no longer like one guy teaching 10 people. It's, <laughs> it's actually like, it's an institution now. As, just as the government is an institution trying to, uh, that has created the institution of asylums, now it's their institution of universities. And there are people who are specialized and there are people who specialize on the mind. And they are very interested in these in these madmen in the asylums. And where and where this was a slightly more common, this happened all over here, but where this was slightly more common was in in the German speaking sphere. Because whereas Britain and France are like homogenous nations with a state, uh, there is Germany doesn't exist yet. Uh, for a large part of this. At the end of the 18th century, uh, 19th century, that's when Germany starts existing, but, and even then it's kind of disorganized. Uh, so many of the asylums there weren't, like, driven by the effort of the government, they were driven by the effort of universities themselves. Uh, and here's where new methods start to arise around the uh, in the 1800s, and especially the late 1800s. Okay, so like what new methods? Well, the, this sort of... Remember how I mentioned how the ideal is that we should treat these people, even mm-hmm. in the asylums, that like this will be good for the patients. Yeah. And it should be done with a humane method. That is the ideal. And it was very much the ideal of like think, people who thought more than actually did things. The reality <laughs> was very different from theory. While in universities, they want to uplift, they want to uphold the theory as much as possible. Right? Mm-hmm. They want to be the ideal. But while this is happening, we're kind of we're kind of issue we're kind of approaching a problem, uh, and that is that these asylums have been swooping up so many people in them. They have been growing to such an extent that overcrowding is once again becoming a problem, and is becoming a problem like we've never seen before, where hundreds of thousands of people, sometimes millions of people are in these asylums. Uh, in the US, the asylum population jumped by almost a thousand percent, and num- numbers were similar in Britain, Germany, France, and many asylums would have double their maximum capacity. Mm-hmm. And that's despite building hundreds of them yeah. constantly. And th- again, they were big. So obviously they are they are rife for unhealthy conditions. They are they're crowded. Supplies aren't enough. Food isn't enough. There's their breeding ground is for diseases. 
and obviously, as you said, as was mentioned, also at the same time, these universities and another part of them, they're experimenting with something called eugenics. 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 I'm Swedish. Yeah, Pardon. we didn't we didn't mention this, but um, Mia is Swedish oh and God. I'm Eastern European. So if we mispronounce something, uh, please be patient. We English is not our first language. <laughs> it's it's how it, it's how it is. It's how it is. Um, so while this entire population is exploding, that happens at the same time as the eugenics movement is 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 also growing. Uh, academics and thinkers are having basically the idea that hey, maybe we can create perfect citizens mm. or or in some races a perfect race oh boy by eliminating bad stock like with livestock and after all humans are animals so maybe we can do the same thing with humans as we did with animals this is triggering me <laughs> and this is it's really it's, it's you know this is what happens and this is sort of clashing with the ideal in mental health institutions right because uh, the ideal is we want to help these people. We want to help them rehabilitate. We mm-hmm. want to, but there's still the idea that we should reform them mm-hmm. into productive, healthy citizens, as we mentioned, yeah. which is what eugenics also wants. And the asylum movement or the institutions in general, they're faced with a dilemma. Mm-hmm. Either they 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 try to continue and fail, which which they've already been failing for a long time now, to be humane, be reformist, like try to improve the living conditions for these people. But mm-hmm. that hasn't worked, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like the population exploding is getting worse. Yep. Or they double down on the bad aspects of it, yep. on the on the molding good people yep. and eliminating bad stock. Uh, and in the early 1900s, this becomes... And, like, for, and for most nations who are at this point, period of time like involved in like building their own empires across mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. european nations are trying to like they're trying to get one up over each other and obviously one way to do that is to have the best citizens uh, and uh, this leads to uh, compulsory sterilizations for the feeble-minded in many different uh, western european nations as late as the 1950s in japan uh, there were uh, sterilizations of people with psychiatric illnesses. In Sweden, it was up to the 70s. Mm-hmm. And in the early 1900s, what had happening in conjunction with like the eugenics movement, uh, the overcrowding of asylums, is the First World War happens. And uh, we can make an, an entire episode about that also, obviously. But what happens is after the war, suddenly there are millions of people coming home from the front. And many of them have shell shock. Or, or what we would today call PTSD, and many of them are, in turn, like, there's no way f- where for them to go except for in the asylums, which are already overcrowded, they're already, like, too bursting with people. And um, what happens is, suddenly, basically every single family in all of Europe and um, in the Western world, so to say, they're kind of faced with the confrontation that, oh, these asylums exist, and they have awful conditions for most people. And suddenly, the, the, the original goal of the asylums, to keep them isolated, to keep them separate and kind of hide them from the rest of the world, it fails. And people, and the Western world has to sort of confront that these people exist. Yeah. Uh, which leads to people wanting them to become better. But eventually, obviously, we reach a second world war. And, and of course, this, this eventually leads to... <laughs> Like parts of the Holocaust, yeah. Where in Nazi Germany, uh, the Action T4 Euthanasia program 
resulted in the killings of thousands of mentally ill people housed in, in German state institutions. Yep. And, so, and because the Nazis, they don't really care about these highfalutin ideals of of the of the of the reformists they don't they don't they don't care about them yeah. they just want them gone they want to produce the perfect race and these feeble minded they're they're desti- they're batched around that which leads to around 6000 disabled uh, babies children and teenagers being murdered uh, along with thousands and thousands of thousands of adults after the war after the second world war the western world has to deal with the fact that nazi germany decided to double down on their sort of inhumane treatment. Maybe we shouldn't do what the Nazis did to sterilize and eventually genocide. Maybe we should start listening to the people who actually want, you know, their returning soldiers to be well taken care of. Maybe those are the people we should listen to instead of the eugenics movement. Yeah. And this leads to around the 40s and 50s and 60s, for a movement for deinstitutionalization. So deinstitutionalization really takes like in its initial first steps in the 40s with conscientious objectors mm-hmm. um, admitting themselves to asylums mm-hmm. and then reporting on what's happening there. They're pretending to be mentally ill okay, and so reporting like, what's happening. And then they then they go out and they report in newspapers being like, oh, look at them, what's happening in this so asylum. So like infiltrating asylums. They're, yeah, they're infiltrating asylums. And this becomes because they object to the treatment of people who are there. Because but who, who were they? They were people of all sorts. They were people who objected to, uh, to I, like they were anti-eugenics, for example. Okay. They were people who were just against like bad health. Like people, there were some people who were just organized around like wanting better conditions for the mentally ill. Like okay. that, that was like a movement in and of itself. Okay, I see. And they exposed abuses throughout the entire psychiatric system. And, the, and this was in the fifties and the sixties. In the forties, even in the forties. Uh, so this started happening in the forties. Uh, obviously, like during the war, people had other things on their mind. Yeah, but this is really important because before this, like in the Victorian era, most people, like, sure, newspapers existed, but they were very much like controlled by like high, high up interests, mm-hmm. right? Who were often like connected with the owners of the asylum, either with government or sanatoriums, right? So the the world didn't really know how things were. Mm-hmm. But in the 1450s, information is becoming so more widespread. Mm-hmm. Like there are more newspapers, there are more Airs information, the telegraph is becoming more popular, there's radio, there's uh, telephones, like it's communication is like never before. And so now these sort of stories have an easier time penetrating the sort of uh, journalism mindscape. Uh, the government can't control everything that's out and nor can the rich. And so when these people expose these abuses in the system, it really hits. It hits society. And when John F. Kennedy got elected, one thing that he wanted to do is he really wanted to close many of these asylums and he passed uh, he passed a law that said basically that we're going to shift the burden of care away from like large centralized big asylums to community care Mm -hmm. with with a big idea being that if these people are like treated in their own communities surrounded by you know their own families and then like in their home basically or like well you know in their hometown at least or in the home region uh treated by people who know them 
that will be more effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that also forces people to sort of keep uh, these institutions under check. Like if an asylum is, as as they were often built, like in the forest or in the mountains or something, yes, that isolates them and like keeps society safe from the mad people, sure, but it also leaves them with almost no oversight. And yeah. that's where these abuses come in. Yeah. If if you have an office on Main Street, mm-hmm. you can't torture your patients yeah. as much because they will scream. Yeah, and people it's a will bit. Be like, it's hey. a bit more. Yeah, it's a bit more in the public mm. eye. And this and and the idea was that this will sort of force people to be more humane. Yeah, makes sense. And that is sort of where psychiatric care kind of got incorporated under general hospitals mm-hmm. because you know hospitals were more in the community. You needed a clinic, and suddenly. Uh, these clinics were like, okay, <laughs> we need to take care of these people now. First of all, we can't. So most people who were in the asylums were released, which is a good thing. Like most people who have like depression or anxiety don't necessarily be, need to be locked up. God knows I would be in, in an asylum if that, if that was the case. <laughs> so many of the local clinics started to hire um, therapists they started to hire uh, psychologists. They started to like in, uh, employ the people who were who were sort of, of trained specialized in... in this field. Exactly, as opposed to just like nurses or physicians. Exactly, yeah. like and uh, and very much people who were like more socially accepted, like doctors who previously in the asylum they were often specialized in as just like um, hydrotherapy, yeah. uh, electroshock therapy, uh, all of these things that like sound bad. And aren't very popular for like mainstream people. Like people don't want that to happen in their own hospitals. But people are fine with like occupational therapy, art therapy, group therapy. These things people are fine with having in their hospitals. Mm-hmm. Like that's socially acceptable, yep. and they're way more humane. Um, so they're high people who are who do that sort of care. And this also led to like dealing with overpopulation. Turns out the best solution to dealing with overpopulation is just to let people out. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Maybe that can be applied to prisons. Uh, and there was definitely an argument that community services would be cheaper because new psychiatric medication made it more feasible to release people in, in the community. You know, this is the 50s. This is, where, this is where a new sort of treatment comes in, where it's like, we can, we can treat these people with chemicals. And that's where people start giving out. Uh, instead of having them isolated in the big hospital... We can just give them Vicodin. We can just give people pay pills. We just pop them pills all day. Mm-hmm. As um, uh, if you know anything from like fifties and sixties, like medical commercials, mm-hmm. this is very popular. Mm, there was a lot of like tranquilizing going on. A lot of tranquilizing. A lot of like n- numbing of, yeah. of of things. And that's sort of still the same er- area where we are today. Like there is there's a very clear line from like having you know arguably very dangerous medications uh by today's standards to 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 people realizing oh well these medications aren't that as effective but maybe for example like benzodiazepines or uh antidepressants mm-hmm. or anti-anxiety medication mm-hmm. which is what a lot of people have today along with things like therapy and similar sort of treatments in in the local clinic yeah so there is kind of a smooth transition mm. between tranquilizing people in uh, in hospitals into what we have today, which is medication plus therapy plus other kinds. Exactly, of- like th- this this sort of system of, of of 
this like there was a massive shift right from asylums to local care but from that local care sort of where everything got augmented into like that therapy uh, medical uh, chemical medication uh therapy like uh, art i said that already <laughs> um, well different forms of therapy I different guess. forms of therapy yeah yeah and that's sort of where it goes. yeah and however I guess like self-care self-care is another one self-care well, like physical physical exercise and, and yeah uh, meditation and things like that and all of these which are popular ha- today exactly and all of these things happen like during the 50s and 60s during like the building of the welfare state as well so like there's there is still like this big government sort of responsibility here mm-hmm. but suddenly it's like for everyone like everyone should be mentally fit everyone should be physically fit uh, everyone should be well fed. Everyone should be well taken care of. Everyone should have unemployment benefits. And it turns out when when you do all these all of these things, people feel better. People feel better. Wild. Um, <laughs> however, the asylum system, even though it got massive, massively reduced, still hasn't gone away. No, because we still have uh, we still have asylums. We still, we have, still have psych wards. Well, psych they're wards. not called asylums anymore. They're called closed mental health institutions. No, but a lot of them are still asylums. There's still yeah. a few few out there There's that could definitely do with some reforms. Probably. And the, um, the, the only reason they exist is because the idea was that we can't get rid of them because mm. they are the criminally insane. Mm. They are those who literally will be a danger to society yeah. if they can't if they like they have to be isolated. And those still exist. And there's an argument for, you know, how how that should be done. Who is mentally insane to the point of, of, of that? Like, yeah. How do we define that? It's still... I mean, it's it's kind of... This is very interesting to, you know, to look at pictures of those places. Yeah. Um, and because a lot of those places are... Have been built, like, you know, three or four hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, so... Oh. And, and, you know, like, sure, the practices are better, but mm. they're still, like... A fair amount of abuse going on in some of them, so it's it's kind of yeah. it's kind of interesting that the buildings and the practices are um, like kind of, yeah. quite old fashioned. It, yeah, you keep hearing things in the news about like you know you like know, abuse going on, abuse in going some of those on places. Uh, yeah, yeah, against people who are so like mentally unwell that they that they can't. But really, I mean, there is. I know that there is a lot of racism going on, and a oh, lot of them, a lot of like, yeah. there's a lot of abuse going on against like women of color. Mm. Um, I know there's one particular um, psych ward in New York, which is particularly like has has a lot yeah. of really bad re- re- reviews. Yeah, bad bad reviews. <laughs> they got oh my god. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah, but it, it, it's something that I that I forgot to mention during the during the deinstitutionalization. Many of the asylums that were that were built during like the eighteen hundreds, like in the early eighteen hundreds, like during this like big statewide effort to build these buildings, they were still in use up until the fifties and sixties. Yeah. When when like these legal changes happened, changed, and this had happened in America primarily, sort of first, like there were gradual changes everywhere. Obviously, like again, history is messy. You know, other countries delayed, like Sweden didn't really change its system until nineteen seventy five, which is wild when you think about it. And uh, many of these systems have also like been transferred on to. And, like, tacked on to other things, because the people who are in power within these asylum systems, you know, they didn't want to go, they didn't want to change. So, uh, in Sweden, for example, many of the old practices about how how to judge, for example, trans people, they mm-hmm. were just taken from the old asylum system and just carried on into the, into mm-hmm. the trans healthcare system. Mm-hmm. 
so that they wouldn't have to change how they treated trans people. In Canada, for example, many of these asylum practices were, uh, they were closed down, in quotations, um, only to be carried on into uh, being part of how they would treat uh, people from First Nations mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and indigenous populations. Basically, people already knew that these systems were cruel and bad. Uh, and when they when they left, some people still wanted to do them mm-hmm. <laughs> and managed to convince people in power to just yeah. let them do it. It's like bad practices exist in a closed system. Like, yeah. they can't escape. They have to go somewhere. They have to go somewhere. But also, it really shows who the people in power think are, like, normal, socially acceptable. Yeah. Like, yeah. during the 50s, like, maybe people in power start thinking, like, well, yeah, m- maybe maybe the mentally ill should be mm-hmm. more willful taken care of. But not those, like, freaking trans people or those freaking, like... Women of color na- or Women of color Americans. or Native Americans. Like, yeah. the indigenous populations of northern... Something, something. Like, they... People in power... You can see where people in power wanted to enforce... Mm-hmm. Uh, almost violently, this sort of isolation and control. Because that is what the asylum system was really about. So how are mental institutions today? What, uh, What new methods do we see? And what are some methods that are outdated or like that maybe should be reformed? Well, there's still like very old sort of traditional practices that yeah. are that are still that are hard to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Like there's still this idea that the walls should have a calming color, uh, yeah. not too much stimulation right, of the senses. Right. Like psych wards are really sterile. They're looking, very sterile. Right? It's, it's all usually white. white, it's white all paint boring. or yeah. like light blue paint. Very, very little furniture. Almost no furniture, almost nothing on the walls. Yeah. Very rare. And if it is, it's like something very like a flower, mm-hmm. like a photograph of a flower. No paint, though, because that's <laughs> that's too surreal. You can't have that. Mm-hmm. And they're often like extremely underfunded, which... Yeah, uh, mental health doesn't really get a lot of funding, no. unfortunately. Uh, which is kind of a weird side effect away from... Like, they were always poorly funded for what they were. Like, even yep. when they were overpopulated... With hundreds of thousands of people, they like they would need more funding to not be overpopulated. Yeah. Um, but when the asylum system sort of fell apart, the sort of public consciousness about them sort of was like, oh well, they're gone now. Obviously, like they don't exist anymore, so we don't need to think about that. But that also that has also led to budgets for just normal mental health care uh, or psych wards being very low because people think that like they we, we don't need that anymore. Yeah. They're they're often understaffed. Mm-hmm. Um. They are often, they're often like, like a general population. Like there's, there's very, there's very rarely a sort of uh, place where you can go, like for specifically like your type of mental illness. Like you're usually like shoved in like a room. You maybe get, you like you might get a own room, but like you're going to be in a hallway with people who have all sorts of mm. different mental conditions. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're, you're divided based on like how predictable you are. Yeah. Let's say that. Like, if um, you can be easily controlled, you'll be in, like, a low-security sector. Yeah, like, if, if you're like, depressed, they, they let you be sad with the other depressed people. If you're maybe more manic, I guess mm. they, you know, they sort of, like, separate. Some, yeah, but sometimes they don't. They don't. It really depends on the funding. Like, sometimes, you know, sometimes they do mi- they do mix people who are have wildly different behavioral types mm-hmm. together just because, like, that's all they have, that's all they can do, which... 
you know, isn't really conducive to, to helping. And something that has been sort of reported on occasionally by people who like want to be whistleblowers, um, there are people who still today infiltrate psych wards, for example. Like they, they, they pretend to have a sort of mental illness to sort of uh, see what the conditions are. And something that they, a lot of them report on, and something that a lot of people who have been sort of tricked into a psych ward, because yep. uh, that can happen, which is <laughs> the wildest thing. Many of them report, like, once you're in a psych ward, everything that you do is, like, seen under a lens of mental illness. Mm-hmm. So what would otherwise be seen as, like, normal behavior will be explained away. Yeah. So, for, like, for example, like, there's no entertainment. Like, you can't charge your phone. If you even get to bring your phone, you, so I could, there I could might be a book. How, yeah, so I can imagine like may, maybe being like restless and antsy. Yeah, like you, you be... like walking. Around, yeah, because you you know you can walk around in circles, mm-hmm. pacing, uh, pacing. There's nothing to look out out of the window. Maybe maybe it's just a concrete wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you maybe you just stare into space for yep. a while. Yep. And these things, like if in real life, if you were just a, like uh, a person in a room, and you were like, hey this sucks, I have nothing to do, would make perfect sense to any reasonable person. Yeah. But in a space like that, nurses will look at you and they will they will see that you're acting. Mm-hmm. You're acting in an antisocial way. You're mm-hmm. not behaving normally. You're acting out. You're acting this, out. This pacing of yours is really... It's, it's, in, it's, it's worrisome. And if you complain, God help you. Um, and they all, they, and they, you know, they always want to sort of they want to make sure that you're behaving well. Yeah. So they, it's still a lot about this control. So there's a lot of like yeah. sleeping pills every night to make sure that you fall asleep correctly. Like you can't stay up and read. Yeah. Like you it have really, to... it really seems that they're so, um, so about enforcing uh, rules and so mm. much about so so much of it is just about like controlling your behavior and yeah. making sure that you don't overstep like the slightest bit yeah it's very it seems very oppressive very yeah. um, um nobody there is your friend <laughs> very much now but it's kind of a good thing today that we kind of see us on or like the psych ward as a sort of last resort thing yeah like if you have mental unhealth which I'm sure that a lot of people in who are it's listening very to common. This, it's very common it's very common today you don't really have to fear being institutionalized but being institutionalized is still something you can be. Like, deinstitutionalization hasn't gone 100%. Like, we're, we're maybe at 95, 98%. But, you know, for some people who, for example, have a mental health crisis, they may, they may be institutionalized against their will. And they may be put in a situation like this. Yeah, you have where... to be very careful when you tell your therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Tread carefully there. Tread carefully. Mm. And that's 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 a sort of like old traditions about how mental health care works, mm-hmm. like old ideas about how it works, still being a sort of foundational view of the most extreme cases in mental health. Yeah. Which is completely inhumane. And I think in 100 years or 200 years, we're going to be like, what on earth were we thinking? Oh my thinking? God, there are so many things, though, sort of related to mental health and mental illness that, or like so many practices. Mm. Um, that we have that I I feel like we are really gonna look back at and be like, mm. oh, <laughs> that was Yikes. quite something. Yikes! One of them is the fact that we still do electroshock therapy, and this mm. is something that I actually um, 
actually found out about this not too long ago. I mm. was, um, you know, I, I kind of accidentally stumbled upon it. You stumbled into electroshock therapy. Yeah. We've all, as, been, we've as, all been there. As you do. On Friday night. So I was reading about it and, uh, you know, it's, it, it is still used for treatment of, um, of depression. Mm-hmm. Apparently there, <laughs> from what I can see, there aren't so many like side effects. There's short-term memory loss. Short-term memory for, loss. For exactly. a little bit. Short-term memory loss is one of them. Um, but I'm just wondering if this is this is similar to like like other things that we used to do to people in asylums, where like now we look back and we're like, maybe they were there were definitely side effects to that. But at, at the same time, isn't electroshock therapy like effective for very specific things? Right, back in the day when electroshock therapy was sort of innovated, they used it for freaking everything. Like yeah, they, no, they, it they, is... they, if you were uppity about anything, like you did, <laughs> if you didn't like your cornflakes that morning, you, um, <laughs> but like for very specific things, like for sometimes of like epilepsy it, and for some specific types of depression, like it can yeah, sometimes it, it can work. help. It can, I mean, it, it can help, but then this is a question of like, is this the best that we can do? Because even lobotomies, one could argue that they did help. <laughs> In some cases. I mean, they, they, they did what it said on the can. Right. Like, so, it, it did calm down people. It also made them... It did, wasn't, you know, wasn't good from their perspective, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, it did, you know, for, for the purposes of, of what they wanted the lobotomy to do, it did work. It is true. Right. And, like, people at the time were like, well, you know what? It, it helps. You like, know, what's the problem? It, does, not, it, it may, does work. It, it, so, maybe it's a bit brutal, but, you know, it gets the job done. Yeah, exactly. And so, just look... I mean, it, there's, there's just a part of me that like has a problem with strapping people down attaching electrodes to their head and running like 200 volts or yeah. whatever it is but at least it's consensual now i i'm sure that there were people who agreed to lobotomies back in the day oh they were 100 right. that's true so that's a good I, point. I would but say it, like but also i feel like a lot of the, also what is free will uh, abuse what is free will that's an it, episode for it <laughs> um but so, but so, what I mean is, like, even though we we do this now, uh, it, it is still mm. it's you know there's things will change Maybe, in the future, yeah. and we will look back at some of the things that we do today, and we will be like yikes it out. <laughs> That's how I feel about antidepressants. Antidepressants, exactly. Yeah. We don't know how they work. Yeah, we don't know why they work. Yeah, because like we, if you if you don't know this, dear listener, we don't know how antidepressants work. No. We do know that they do work, and we do know that they mess with the brain. But we don't exactly know why well, that makes know, people less sad sometimes. Exactly. We know the general mechanism of antidepressants. We know that they, you know, they increase the, the like, the general level of serotonin yeah. in, the bra- in the brain. But it's not, you know, there's there's a few details there that, like, we simply, we, we just can't explain right yeah, now. Yeah, we don't know. So, you know, what we do is we just give this powerful medication to people and we hope that it works, and mm-hmm. sometimes it does. For like a third of the people who experience depression, anxiety, they help. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the mechanism is still not fully understood. And then lastly, I mean, we, we really don't even know the the cause of mental illness we we don't know where it comes from we 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 know we know bits and pieces we know for example that mental illness that having one mental illness makes you more susceptible to developing other mental illnesses we know that there's links between them so there's different categories of mental illnesses so like you're more likely to have the the mental mental illnesses from the same category um but really 
most of the things that we know about mental health are are still in the works. They are still just theories. So there's still a lot of unknown um, unknown factors when it comes to, to mental health mm. and the brain in general. Mm. And that's a quick summary on all of all of mental health treatments from the Stone Age all up until <laughs> today and potentially the future. <laughs> Uh, Just a quick course on uh, neuropathology in there as well. <laughs> oh my god. We're probably going to return to some of these topics and like very yeah, narrow, deep dive. Yeah, we, we probably missed a lot. But, we probably missed a um, lot. But hopefully we can return to some of these subjects and uh, yeah. one don't, day. Don't hold it against us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And uh, that's the podcast, I think. That's the podcast. Okay. Well, once again, I'm Braluca. I am Mia. You can um, find me on miamulder.com. I do not have a media presence just yet. so uh, This is your media presence. Well, other than this. The podcast. I do not have a YouTube channel. Yet. I do not want to work on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very fair point. Uh, we'll see everyone else, I guess, next time we make next podcast. Do, we should, no, we should, we should find an outro phrase before we start. What should be a fun outro phrase for a podcast? We'll find an outro phrase. One day we'll find an outro phrase. Um, and that's our outro phrase. Yeah, we're, we're still working on our outro phrase. No, so. no, no. One day we'll find an outro phrase. Is our outro phrase. One day we'll find an outro phrase. Okay, thanks for listening to our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> One day we'll find an outro phrase. One day we'll find an outro phrase. <laughs>